All right, everyone, uh, back with another weekly roundup. Uh, super excited. We've got some crazy stuff. Santiago just leaked to me that he's going to leak a little bit of alpha mm-hmm. here. So, Santiago, my friend, GM. GM, GM. Awesome. I think uh, first things first, marketing team told me I have to share an announcement around permission list. If you guys aren't coming, we have 2,300 people already registered. Biggest cultural event of the year, metaverse event of the year, some insane DeFi speakers coming. Mr. Santiago himself is speaking uh, along with a whole bunch of other investors. You can find it. Uh, just go to our website, blockworks.co. Uh, it's kind of all over the site, honestly. I think top right, top left, you can see uh, the permissionless event. We drop 250 tickets every two weeks. They sell out every time. The 250 ticket batch is almost sold out. So go get your tickets uh, before we increase the price. That's permissionless. Next thing is Big congrats is in order to Santiago. Uh, Pleaser Dow raising a nice chunk of change from Andreessen Horowitz from A16Z. So congrats, Santiago. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And definitely don't want to miss out permissionless. I'll be awesome. there. And it's going to be out. fun. Um, tell me about this uh, A16Z Pleaser Dow thing. What what happened here? And why why did A16Z get involved with this Dow? Like, what did they see here? What What's going on? Yeah, you know, PleaserDAO really started as a small group of people that wanted to, you know, acquire uh, first the Uni3 video by PeoplePleaser, who was a great artist, and then it just expanded and morphed into this, the most important collector DAO, <clears throat> and the mission is really to collect uh, very emblematic pieces of the internet, culture, and Web3, and, you know, that's very much aligned with A16Z. It's a firm that, you know, was started by Ben and and Mark, who, you know, are visionaries in the internet and obviously are so much into crypto now, and... Uh, we felt that they would be great partners to help us bring more structure and, and bring on, you know, they're big into culture too. They're, they're investors in stuff like, um, what is it, uh, Clubhouse and a few others. And so I think, you know, as crypto becomes more mainstream and we want to be sort of a Medici house to incubate artists, we thought that, you know, A16T really brings a lot of expertise in, in company building and formation. And so they have a great team and we're super excited to have them. Very cool. Can you give us a sneak peek of uh, some of the things that you guys are buying next? Um, yeah, you know, I guess, um, there was a very emblematic sale yesterday of a Wikipedia, uh, it was the NFT, it was made an NFT, so the first entry post of the founder of Wikipedia, um, sort of the hello world was made into an NFT. So we may or may have not acquired that, um, along with the computer is a strawberry Mac, uh, that he used. Uh, and so to me, <clears throat> you know, that is, again, a hallmark of, of internet culture and also Web3. You think about what Wikipedia has done, really. You know, it started off, first of all, it's open source, right? And, and it's this idea that anyone can collaborate and, and really opens up knowledge base and access to information. Whereas before you had Encarta and Britannica and all these encyclopedias had to go to a library. Sure, it's open, but still not everyone can access that, right? And to me, just it's fascinating how Wikipedia just went from being hey, this is not a credible source, right? You were in school, you couldn't cite Wikipedia. And now Wikipedia is like sort of a source of truth. And this is the power, I think, of open source networks that ultimately you converge on the truth. And Wikipedia today is, you know, you can't keep up with the pace of new information. So invariably you go to something like Wikipedia that is constantly updating that. And so uh, I think it's a, it's a hallmark piece of the internet. Um, and um, again, we may have may or may not have acquired that but nice, I, I love that wikipedia um i mean w- wikipedia is like a re- the, one of the best examples of why open source information is so prolific and why why it actually works it's also a great example of why the web 2 business models for open source information suck right every time you go on wikipedia it's like please will you donate two dollars please 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 and wikipedia is actually one of the few things where like the website's pulling me to like give them money and, and I actually give Wikipedia money all the time because I use it so much, right. uh, but it, but it's a crap business yeah. model. And I think, yeah, you know, Web3, I, I love that you guys did that. Yeah. I mean, Wikipedia really is like in so many ways, like a public good. Right. And it, it, like Linux, right. The, the thing about open source is we know it's so powerful. People naturally want to go to open communities and open source networks. The problem has been modernization and continuity. And so now this is the power of crypto. This is what I saw when I saw Ethereum early, in, early on. It's just sort of you wrap a token and you allow any contributor to accrue value. So, so imagine a world where Wikipedia were deployed today on the Ethereum network or Solana. And every contributor had a token, right? Like it would, it would probably like, you know, every contributor to Wikipedia would accrue value. Um, and you would have a self-sustaining business model that didn't rely on donations. And so 
that's really the power of, of Web3. Let's get into um, just how you're, you're viewing the markets right now. I think one of the big things this mm-hmm. week was uh, the here, like there's some regulatory stuff coming down. Liz Warren coming down on stable coins and DeFi. We'll, we'll save that for a little bit. Uh, but one big thing that you and, you and me were just pinging about on Telegram is just like the FOMC meeting. Um, and so I think uh, this kind of, I mean, tied into the markets, obviously, anytime there's a big meeting and Jay Powell gives a public talk. Uh, I think some of the big takeaways here is that uh, obviously inflation really is transitory. Um, uh, it's kind of his, some of his actions that he's saying. Uh, he kind of waxed uh, poetic enthusiasm about like this rapidly improving labor market and the economy. And, you know, I think it's a kind of typical Jay Powell speech. I think the big one of the big takeaways is uh, for me, like reading between the lines, is that Powell and the Fed just badly, badly underestimated uh, both the rise of inflation and the strength of the labor market. Uh, I think he honestly made it sound like the inflation, like this revelation around inflation staying kind of came to him last month. I'm, I don't know. I, I'm sitting here on the sideline being like, where where have you been, buddy? What, how, how does this how does this come to you in the last 30 days? So I don't know. What are your, what are your takeaways from this meeting? Yeah, look, I mean, I tweeted about this uh, earlier, which is I don't think inflation is transitory. And the same response, it, it sort of reminds me a lot of when um, COVID, in the early days of COVID, but a lot of the health organizations and, and governments were dismissive of it. So this is not a pandemic. And, and I think it, 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 you could argue they did that for precautionary reasons because they were grossly underprepared. Um, and I just think that, you know, as we continue to see these actions, like, I, I think it just, again, we've been into this megatrend where, like, people are waking up slowly to this idea that, you know, the credibility that you have in institutions is degrading very quickly. I mean, that's been a megatrend in the last 10 years. Um, and I think... You know, I, I don't buy this idea that inflation is transitory. Um, you know, uh, European regulators came out today saying, look, a lot of a lot of this inflation is caused by rising energy prices because it's a natural gas-like crisis in Europe. I mean, really, here's the thing. Inflation is felt when you go to the supermarket. There's obviously, like, Amazon technology that has been in a very deflationary mode, right? It, it, technology tends to, like, compress the price of things. Um, but the problem that I worried about coming into this meeting is, you know, what's going to happen when people stop, okay, quantity, you, you shut down stimulus checks in, in QE. So what happens when people stop, stop receiving stimulus checks and they go to the supermarket and things are 20, 30% more expensive? You know, you have a supply chain crisis with COVID and all this stuff. They're just further aggravating this stuff. And, and so, like, what happens then? I mean, Ray Daly tweeted about this the other day, which is like, I, I sort of felt this for a long time, which is there is a rising risk of civil unrest. Um, and, and especially in a country like the U.S. where you have rising inequality. And so, you know, candidly, like going into this meeting, I was, <clears throat> and I think the crypto markets really reacted to this. And, in a, in a, you know, obviously the, the beta the crypto markets have relative to traditional markets is still quite high, right? And so I think, you know, Bitcoin fell all the way down to like, what was it, 46-ish, perhaps even more than that. Um, ETH um, really took a hit as well. You know, you went to all the way down to like 36. Uh, it wicked, and you're back at now at four. Uh, tell you the truth, like I, I, I'm, you know, and then you could argue there's a lot of confounding factors, right? Towards the end of the year, people tend to t- take profit, and you know, it's been a great year for a lot of a lot of investors. And so, um, I, I do generally think that, like, I, I was very, very surprised of how markets reacted. You know, there was a sharp rally, uh, in, spe- specifically in crypto markets are still up today. And so, I mean, I just like to remind myself, <laughs> markets stopped being rational a long, long time ago. There's a great block called uh, what is it, Epsilon Theory, which is like you have Alpha, Beta, Epsilon. And Epsilon is this idea of like the randomness in markets. And I think like a day like yesterday and how markets have reacted and, and the Fed coming out being more hawkish and tapering, then you could argue that, I, I don't know, maybe like markets were factoring that in. I, I don't know. I certainly was a bit surprised. Um, the European banks today came out saying they're going to keep rates flat. So look, I mean, there's a lot of information. That I just tend to think that um, it is very hard to predict markets, and in a day like today, and the response that you're seeing is 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 just as hard to explain. Yeah. Shout out Ben Hunt. We should get Ben Hunt on the show. Epsilon theory is just is great. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, okay. So take me into like how you're playing the markets moving forward for the next you know three six months. Uh, before we hit, hit the recording button, you were saying that you're doing a little repositioning and playing around. And like, how, mm-hmm. how do you play these markets right now, especially coming off this uh, kind of uh, impactful FOMC meeting? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I continue to think that crypto is a secular trend. It's it's sort of, um, I've said it before, but I think crypto is is like software as a service where you've been in this sort of bull market of the last 20 years in technology. And I think crypto is entering that. I, I, I tweeted the other day, I, I think crypto is entering mainstream, uh, particularly um, driven by, you know, NFTs and gaming. And I think that's going to continue to proliferate into next year. Um, I'm not dismissive of macro. I can't predict it, though. It's hard for me to make any assessment. I mean, I, I, I take note of it. But, you know, for me, like, rising 25 basis points on the treasury curve, is that going to really compel me to go to bonds? No. Because I've always been at, I've always believed that this, like, technology is what gets us out of this macro mess and Ponzi. And, and for me, I just think, look, I, I talked to a lot of folks here. Um, and I asked them, okay, how much are you holding cash? And they're like, oh, you know, from varying the like 5% to like 80%. I'm like, how do you think about inflation? I'm like, I don't know. That's a good question. And so we're all worried about inflation. Um, and at the same time, people don't really know where to allocate this stuff. And I think they hate being in cash. You know, when you look at like, you know, March of uh, right when COVID started or in the global financial crisis, like there are moments where there is a huge dislocation between what the market believes is going to happen and what actually happens. Shocks like COVID um, or, you know, global financial crisis. But very quickly, they reallocate into however they think, right? And they, they just, this idea, they generally hate sitting on cash. Um, and I think you know, whatever repositioning happens, I think we're still in this phase, and I don't think it's going to change, where people just continue to allocate into crypto, both as a technology bid, maybe as a macro hedge going into Bitcoin. Um, in my portfolio, I just think there are very compelling opportunities in the market. Um, you know, DeFi has totally been forgotten. I just continue to think that that's going to, you know, if you believe gaming is going to take off, then DeFi invariably is going to be on the back end. Um, there are other chains I tweeted about today. You know, I'm, I'm increasingly encouraged by something like Nier um, and all the activity that's happening there. Um, I just think it's a super competent team. And, you know, one of the best things about, we had Jeremy Lair in a podcast the other day, and I think, you know, you want to beat inflation. Well, how about, you know, farming with stables? You know, you can get 5, 10, 20, 30% on, on stablecoin uh, yield on chain. You know, there's certainly a lot of risk attached to that, but you can hedge that by insurance, you know. And so uh, I think that's, uh, it's very compelling. Let's talk DeFi. Uh, our favorite... Uh Yep. Senator Liz Warren uh, from Massachusetts. I uh, had a fun little thing this this week. Uh, this is uh, during a hearing earlier in the week. I think it was like Tuesday, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, from Elizabeth Warren, stable coins pose risks to consumers and to our economy. They're propping up one of the shadiest parts of the crypto world, DeFi, where consumers are least protected from getting scammed. Our, regula- our regulators need to get serious about clamping down before it is too late. Right. According to Warren, DeFi is where the regulation is effectively absent. And this quote, and no surprise, it's where the scammers and the cheats and the swindlers mix among part time investors and first time crypto traders. Quote, our regulators need to get serious about clamping down on DeFi before it is too late. Uh, What's your take on this? (laughs) I mean, look, you got to remember politicians want to be reelected. And, and when they come out with this stance, even like Mnuchin and stuff like this, it's sort of like the Trump strategy, which is just be loud and controversial. Um, and does she really believe that? I mean, I struggle to think that if you spend an hour or two researching about the space, you come to the same conclusion. I know that there's junior staff in her department that probably don't think this. So has she consulted with them? I, I don't know. Um, Let's just get a few things straight. One, it's a transparent system. You need to regulate banks because you, Jason, you go to the bank, you deposit money. Do you know what they're doing with it? No clue. Exactly. You know that they're using it, right? They're rehypothecating or whatever, lending it out and investing in some crap. You have no clue. And you're protected, okay, 125K or something, FDIC insurance. But, you know, 2008 taught you that banks can go down. So you need regulation. You need capital ratios. You need all this stuff. When you deposit your money in Aave or Compound, do you know exactly what's going on? Yeah, of course. It's all on chain. Exactly. Exactly. It's all on chain. The smart contract is the regulation because you express regulation through code and code is arbitrary and it's not, it, there's no subjectivity to it. It's perfectly transparent. And that's my key message to them. It's like, listen, you, yeah, yeah, there, there needs to be some regulation in crypto. I'm not dismissive of that. But to say that, is this, is this, is this, is this not true? It's a perfectly transparent system. And, and, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the observation I've had is, 
You know, I think U.S. is, is, is in this sort of tricky position in crypto where it hasn't been as aggressive as India or China, right? They haven't really, like, shut it down as China has at times. But, you know, it is at risk where it is putting itself in a disadvantage where a lot of the best founders that I've met leave the U.S. because it's just uncertain. And, and stuff like this really scares the shit out of a founder. Um, whereas I've always thought, look, why wouldn't you want someone to have USDC? The world loves having dollars. I grew up in Mexico. People love having dollars. Now you can have that through USDC. It, it is another vehicle to own dollars. Like, why would you not want to have that? And I think it just opens up uh, a vector for having China, which has been pushing towards digital yuan. Uh, you combine that with the Belt and Road Initiative and like, hey, is it crazy to think that maybe the digital yuan is a more pervasive kind of like stable coin across the world? Maybe. I mean, if you totally shut down USDC, then it leaves a window open for someone else to come in. Yeah, I think there are three really important elements here. Short term, I think it's really important to just note that crypto is a fundamentally more transparent system than the traditional capital market system right now on a more medium to long-term basis. I think it's important to note that the more we clamp down on crypto, the more the smartest entrepreneurs and founders and builders and investors leave the U.S., which really hurts us long-term. And then even longer term, uh, on a global reserve currency basis, the more that we clamp down on things like USDC, the more that we open up uh, you know, the, you know, the road for someone like China to come in uh, and have the global reserve currency. So I think there's three, three aspects there. I also think there's another interesting conversation to talk about, which is it really feels like Republicans are lining up pro-crypto. Uh, you've got like Ted Cruz coming out, like very pro-Bitcoin mining all of a sudden, which is just funny to see. Uh, and then the Dems are very anti-crypto. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Why, why, like, why is that? Why is it playing out like that? It's, it feel, it's, it's really bothersome to me. It, it, kind of, it feels inevitable that this would become a political issue because everything uh, becomes a political issue these days. And like COVID, COVID should not be a political issue. COVID is obviously, if, if you're from a red state, you hate masks, you hate the vaccine, things like that usually. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you're from like a California or from like a New York, you know, it's masks inside, all that kind of stuff. It very quickly mm -hmm. became a political thing. And it feels like crypto, the exact same thing is happening. Yeah, although to be fair, though, in, during the infrastructure bill, um, you had, I think, it was one of the most widely discussed bills from constituents that were reaching out to the senators and representatives of the Hill, um, and also bipartisan support to really tone down the reach of this infrastructure bill. Because the initial version, my understanding was, was very anti-crypto and then had some stuff in there that was very problematic. And then from both sides of the aisle, you saw, you know, a, a pushback and saying, wait a minute, um, you know, this is actually not, let you, let's be more cautious in how we regulate this. So, you know, I, I do want to point that out because, you know, I, I think crypto is, 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 you know, something that both parties, well, I guess like certain people within parties, what I'm trying to say is there are varying opinions and i don't think it's as clear as republicans love crypto or are perhaps more fond of crypto than democrats um because i don't think uh you know uh warren uh liz warren is is representative perhaps of the democrat party i think a lot of people in america just anecdotally uh maybe this is just my friend group uh if you if you if you talk to our parents like our parents very very much fit into like left versus right Right. Like you were a lot of people felt really good about being a Democrat and a lot of people felt very good about being a Republican. Right. And they kind of fit into that the mold of like this two party system. And I actually think that the mold of this two party system uh, is breaking down. And a lot of at least a lot of my friends, they have some views that are on the right. They have some views that are on the left. They probably mm -hmm. skew a little more left, but like they don't No, nobody really fits, including myself. Like I don't listen to any politician on the left or any politician on the right. And I'm like, I love what you're saying. I fundamentally agree with mm -hmm. you. And I don't know. I, there's this recent Balaji conversation and like this framework that Balaji has. It's like, there are three, three kind of things that are playing out. You've got like the communist, communist capital, right? In China, CCP, which is you must submit. And then you've got woke capital, like New York Times, you must sympathize. 
Uh, and then there's crypto capital, which is like Bitcoiners. You must be sovereign. Uh, and it, I actually think like mm. there's this fourth, there's this fourth group that needs to emerge, which is uh, like this fourth intermediate, which is the the decentralized center, right? And Balaji's talked about this as well. Which and and I think this appeals to all. It's like when I think about something like DeFi, it's like I don't really understand being mm. against DeFi because it's this more transparent system, right? It's not this communist system. It's not this fully woke system that is, uh, also has a lot of problems and it's not this like fully, fully sovereign system, uh, where everyone's like living, living in Montana or Idaho, like using just a Bitcoin miner, which also has a lot of problems with it too. So I don't know. No, I think you're right. Like, I mean, to round this out, like crypto is not about blowing up existing institutions. It's just about creating more competition because it keeps it is the way I thought about it is Montesquieu developed this how you keep a government in check. You have three bodies, executive, legislative, and what's the other one? Uh, judicial. I think crypto is a fourth leg mm. because it creates the ability. Governments have derived their power for so long, this oil economy, which is power, right? They regulate that, they control that, and so that becomes important. When you have a non-sovereign store of value and people can transact and come to order and consensus without governments having to step in, then all of a sudden it keeps government in check. And I think that's what's most powerful here. It's that at best, governments will feel the pain and become more like corporations. You create this global geopolitical fabric that is more competitive, where people and capital can move so easily around. And that's what's most exciting here. It's not that we're going to blow up governments. We'll always need institutions and hierarchy and structure. Anyone that, anyone that claims otherwise hasn't been in a DAO Discord channel. <laughs> so, before we uh, lose all of our listeners by getting too political here, let's, uh, let's move into some right, of the yeah, deeper yeah. crypto let's stuff. Suzu, uh, we talked about this a while back, maybe on the first episode or maybe that was even pre-recording. But uh, November 20th, Suzu tweets out, yes, I have abandoned Ethereum despite supporting it in the past. Yes, Ethereum has abandoned its users despite supporting them in the past. The idea of sitting around, jerking off, watching the burn, and concocting purity tests while zero newcomers can afford the chain is gross. Ethereum culture suffers massively from the founder's dilemma. Everyone is already far too rich to remember what they originally set out to do. Perhaps a bear market is needed to remind them, or perhaps we must build elsewhere. But this is what it is. Nothing new under the sun. One of the probably tweets of the year, I'd say, just in terms of how much uh, Mm -hmm. conversation it sparked. Uh, Suzu went on uh, un- Uncommon Core with Hasu earlier this week, and I thought it was one of the po- best podcast episodes I've listened to in a while. Uh, Suzu kind of expanded on these ideas, right? Talking about that ETH has over-optimized for money, right? There's, that there's less incentive for the builders to build because they're already quite wealthy. Um, that with layer ones, like users don't really want to wait around for ETH to scale, and that we're seeing it in numbers, just them moving over to things like Solana and Avalanche. Uh, I'd be really curious to get your take on just like this thesis now that you've had a couple of weeks to noodle around on it and like mm-hmm. just updated mm-hmm. thoughts on Sue's tweet and the conversation that he had with Hasu. Yeah, look, th- there is some truth into what Sue's saying. You know, it is, and for a while now, the Ethereum chain has been very expensive for many users. And it is sort of the state of which you see adoption. You saw this in the internet. At one point, using the internet was very, very expensive. Now, here you have other chains, right? Like um, Avalanche, like Avalanche, like Solana, that are much faster, even Binance Smart Chain. There are some users that have migrated over, whether because there's a higher yield, lower transaction fees. And look, in a world of open source, you can fork pretty much all of DeFi and Ethereum, port it over to any other chain, pretty trivially. EVM compatible chains, at least. And so. It, 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 we got to remember, you know, like it, it, there are the moats in open source are, are less clear. And so is there a risk of Ethereum losing its spot? Yeah, definitely. Um, but look, at the, at the end of the day, I would also say, and I was thinking about this, like it is, I continue to believe it's a multi-chain world. I think Ethereum serves a lot of purposes. It is still the most battle tested, the strongest developer community. These things take time. To scale, to build, and and so we. While I sympathize with users that don't like to pay high gas fees, I also think that in a world where I just continue to believe, like we're so early, that 
in, a, in the long term, a lot of aggregators, meaning your financial institution that is going to use on-chain to issue a mortgage, will care about security, will care about decentralization, and invariably, today, will use Ethereum versus any other chain. Now, that's not to say that it won't use Solana or other chains. Maybe we'll just route to the most efficient one. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't want to keep going, but um, I, I, I will push back on this idea that, like, I think the Ethereum community is very focused on scalability. It's been talking about it since day one. There are multiple teams focused on this. We talked about it in prior episodes. You have layer twos like Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum. You have um, ZK rollups like Starkware and ZK Sync. You, these things probably may come faster than most people think. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's important to like appreciate the research, the development that's been going on the back yeah. end. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Well, we'll, we'll do a whole conversation on L2s. Uh, the episode did remind me, though, of this multi-coin point that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of incentives to uh, kind of uh, talk about why things outside of Ethereum are positive if you're multi-coin. Um, but they have this... I think it was a blog post a couple of years ago. It's like Ethereum suffers from anti-network effects. Each new user, and the thesis there is that each new user makes the system less usable for other users by crowding them out. And obviously with positive network effects, uh, every new user increases the utility of the platform for existing users. Negative network effects are when new users actually reduce the utility of the platform for existing users. And I think the the idea here being you know, every time you add a new user to Ethereum, the ga- it, it's about mm-hmm. the gas costs. Uh, yeah, yeah you're, you're totally congesting yeah. gas. So like when DeFi launched since Compound, gas block space in Ethereum has been totally right. congested. Now, okay, I think this is true also of other chains, by the way. It's just that maybe other chains just have more throughput. And so we're able to... Pro- so the marginal, what I'm trying to say is the marginal degradation is much higher in a chain like Ethereum that's already very congested than in another chain like so on. So think of it this way. If you're in a room and there's water and the water is up to here and another user jumps into that, enters the room, well, the water's going to all of a sudden start breathing into you and it becomes really, really uncomfortable to the point that you can die. In Solana, the water's like up to your knees. So, the, so you can support many, many more users to enter the room and that the, 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 you know, the, the water level will increase, but it won't drown you. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, no one's drowning per se, you know, it's sort of like a hyperbole, but, but what I'm trying to say is like, it is a fair thesis. I think that with L2s, the water level, all of a sudden you create multiple rooms and the water level dramatically goes down. And so again, the internet had the same problem. Like we keep going back to these ideas, like smartphones, your phone, I mean, you remember these brick phones, it was wildly expensive per megas to use this stuff. Only very few people could support it. Right. So, you know, the internet didn't go away. People's, people were very critical at the time. You know, even like, you know, Microsoft and a few others, like, why would anyone want to use the internet? Why would anyone want to use a smartphone? You know, faxes are great, yada, yada, yada. And here right. we are. Yeah, I mean, the question just becomes like, does ETH become, right? Everyone said this, so let's use smartphones. Everyone brought up Black, like Blackberry, right? Blackberry, everyone said Blackberries mm-hmm. couldn't get taken down. They had the network effects. Every, you know, yeah. So you're saying Ethereum is BlackBerry? I'm saying that's the question. Is Ethereum iOS or is yeah, Ethereum yeah, BlackBerry? Yeah. Uh, I mean, full disclosure, right? My, I'm, I'm a 2017 crypto person. Like I am, my, mm-hmm. my biggest bag is Bitcoin. My second biggest bag is Ethereum. And then it, and then it really drops off after that. And I've allocation to Solana mm-hmm. and Avalanche and all these other things. But like Bitcoin and ETH, like a lot of the 2017 folks. Uh, and I love ETH. I love ETH, right? What's interesting to look at, though, is like BlockWorks has hired so many people this year. There's this new class of crypto entrants that doesn't feel like the way that I feel. I have a lot of love for Ethereum. I love the Ethereum community. I still use these things, even though it probably doesn't make sense because it's so damn expensive. I still use them because I love mm-hmm. them. And But you know, we have a whole bunch of folks at BlockWorks. They own Bitcoin. They, they never bought ETH right? because they're basically looking at it and they're saying, why would I use a smart contract platform that's slower mm-hmm. and more expensive? Uh, and they don't, yeah, yeah. like, I have this, like, emotional tie to Ethereum. They don't have that. Mm-hmm. There's no... No, it's, it's, it, it's such a good point, Jason, because um, there's another guy, I think, at, um, maybe at the block or uh, Delphi, had said, look, I've sold all my ETH. There's no real reason for me to have something that requires me to spend so much to use it. I'm just going to go to other chains like Solana. And it is a very fair statement. I would say that brand loyalty in crypto um, is lower than Web2, uh, and it's certainly 
certainly like not established because you just don't have mainstream, right? You, you, we, most of us are beta testers, early adopters. So your point's a good one, which is the billion users that have come on online and play these games and social and all this stuff, um, do they care about Ethereum? Well, not really, because they probably haven't heard of any of it. They're just going to, to your point, go to the cheapest right. solution. Right. Uh, let's get into some fun NFT stuff to lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, Bitwise, you see yeah. this this morning? Uh, Bitwise launched the uh, yeah, Bitwise Blue Chip NFT Index Fund, the world's first NFT index fund. I freaking love this. You, you know who I heard it from? Who did you hear it from? One of the largest, one of the largest hedge funds in the world uh, that I talk to regularly about just crypto actually dropped this news uh, a couple hours ago. And I said, wow, first of all, great. You guys are beating me to the punch. Second of all, are you guys allocating to this? And they're like, we're looking at it. Yeah. We're looking at it. I mean, so my, my dad, yeah. my dad's like 70 years old, doesn't. He, want, he wants allocation to all this stuff, but he doesn't, he doesn't really want to like buy it. Uh, and it takes a couple of years to mm-hmm. get him to like, you know, use, figure out how to like use this stuff on his own. Um, you know, shout out my dad. He finally understands how to use Uniswap, which is pretty exciting. But NFTs, for example, he didn't want to go on like OpenSea and buy NFTs, but he really actually mm-hmm. does understand mm-hmm. the, the concept of ideas, uh, the concept of NFTs. And like, this is perfect for someone like that. Oh yeah, well, absolutely. Like so, so, so like the the really good, and I think you're going to say this. The really good thing about this is one, collecting NFTs has become a, a, an expensive sport. The floor, a lot of these are, you know, perhaps much, much more than what you just want to allocate, right? And the nice thing about this is you can. I think the minimum is twenty five thousand, which is much yep. lower than some of the other products of of um, a Bitwise. And it also just gives you a broad-based exposure to, I think the, the it is marketed, I think it's the, the index, uh, the composition of the index is based on floor, um, like floor levels. And so I think 25% of the index is into CryptoPunks, and then you have Bored Apes, and then you have Finanzas, and and Cool Cats, and a, and, and a few others. Um, but it's, it's yeah. fascinating. Um, you know, it just, again, more more ability to invest in, in and get, you know, broad-based exposure to yeah. NFTs. I love Bitwise. I'm just going to call it out. I love they. They are always ten steps ahead. Like they launched the DeFi index before DeFi was getting really hot. Like they launched the broader base, like Crypto Ten, before people wanted to push out beyond Bitcoin and ETH. And uh, I mean, Matt Hogan, their CIO. Like I remember talking to Matt about a potential NFT index fund like nine months ago, and his response was, "Eh, maybe only if there's overwhelming institutional interest in NFTs." And I mean, it's, I don't know. It's really cool to see it. So like digging into it a little bit, uh, I think it's really interesting to look at the, the, what they actually choose. I always find it interesting to see like what indexes choose to put in the index. They allocated 38% to crypto punks, uh, 30% to board apes, 5% to mutant apes, 5% to V friends, which I found kind of interesting. Uh, 5% to autoglyphs, 5% to fidenzas. 4% 4% to Cyberkongs, uh, mm-hmm. 3 to 4% to Cool Cats, 3 to 4% to MeBits, about 2 2.5% to Chromie Squiggles. I like the allocation. I like the uh, the V Friends one's a little confusing, but I don't know, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a fair composition. Um, importantly, I think they're not going to touch certain things um, which right, they're excluding virtual land right now, no gaming items, no music exactly. rights, yeah. No one of ones. Mm-hmm. Because it's NFTs totally with less than a hundred items in their collection, yep. which I find that to be a little odd. Like, I mean, I understand they're maybe too illiquid, but you know, a lot of these, a lot of this stuff is illiquid as is. But I, you could argue. Here's the thing: if you have a Picasso, and a Picasso is like one of whatever, say like a Picasso is one of one, that probably is more liquid than like some random stuff, some like ten thousand drop. NFT project. Why? Because everyone loves a Picasso, right? So if you buy a one-on-one of a, of a very well-respected artist, like a Beeple, then that, that is very liquid because there's a very, very, um, there's a lot of demand for yeah. that and it's hard to get by. And so I, I, I found that a little strange, but I appreciate where they're coming from. Yeah. I love it. I'm excited for a bit why uh, one day we'll have an NFT ETF on the market. <laughs> yeah. Does this get us uh, off of uh, NFT bear market? territory uh to i mean just like any data point in crypto to you can take the same data, data point and argue very different things right one argument the institutions are coming mm-hmm. 
you know, big bull market season, number three coming in for NFTs. The other, this, this marks yeah. the top, down, down only from here. <laughs> the two observations I'll make is, uh, so Index came out with DPI, which is a DeFi-based uh, index. That kind of marked the top of, right around the top of DeFi, yeah. DeFi summer. Then Bitwise rolled out a DeFi fund, like Aave and some of these instruments, I think. And that definitely, you know, we've been in a, in a pretty brutal, I think, bear market in, in DeFi territory. So uh, hopefully this doesn't mark the continuation of a floor pl- price decrease in right. NFTs. I think um, let's keep going on NFTs for a second. One thing that's really interesting is just the uh, the board ape, board apes, uh, the floor price keeps going up and the CryptoPunks uh, is kind of stagnating or going down. Um I don't know. I know you're a big punk guy, so I don't want to dig into you too much here, but like this is less about to me what we're looking at here is a conversation around utility and functionality of NFTs versus non-functional functional NFTs, uh which mm-hmm. actually just reminds me of like the Bitcoin versus ETH conversation, right? Like Bitcoin crypto punks right now kind of feel like Bitcoin. Like crypto punks will always be punks. They will always have value. I don't care if the market falls 98%. Eventually these things will be worth so much money. It's it's completely absurd. That being said, the Ethereum community comes around to Bitcoin and says, look, there's more shit that you can do on top of this thing. Kind of similar to what Bored Apes is doing right now. They've got a much more generous copyright approach uh, compared to crypto punks. Uh, they're launching, you know, Bored Ape. TV shows, they're putting them in commercials, right? They're putting them in movies, right? They're, they're doing merchandising campaigns. So what are your thoughts on like, how do you view the, 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 the Bored Apes floor price just continuing to rise while Punks kind of falls? Yeah, just put the context. So the floor price on Punks right now is 61.8 ETH. Uh, and the floor on, on Apes, Bored Apes is 55, 50. So you got, you know, 10 ETH differential, which can very quickly converge upon. Um, look, I mean, it, it is a very interesting observation. It touches on a lot of things, uh, IP and the restriction of, of, of larva labs around punks. Board Apes has been a fantastic and really, really been the case study here of how you can build a community first and then roll out a bunch of different products. Um, and what a true moat in crypto really means, which is community and just allow anyone to build on top. So is it possible to, that, it, that they, the floor of punks surpasses, the floor of board Ape surpasses punks? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that crypto punks are more aesthetically beautiful um, and have, you know, the, the question is, just some NFTs are not meant to have a lot of utility. Right. They are just, and, and so others are. Um, and so it's just an interesting, I think it will be, it's definitely something to keep track of. Because in many ways, it's telling you what the market really appreciates of NFTs. We always talk about that NFTs need to have a lot of this, a lot of utility and, and whatnot. But I would sometimes would argue that having too much utility degrades from the degrades from the kind of what we as humans tend to think about rare art and collecting, which is there's something pristine about it. I agree. I mean, look at look at the traditional art world, right? And, and look as a DeFi as a DeFi guy come yeah look, buy, as yeah. a DeFi guy coming in NFT land. I was like, well, let's build all this functionality right. and money markets. And, and and then I was like wondering, like, do we actually really need this? Yeah. I mean, if you buy a painting, very expensive painting, you have no right. You have no right to reproduce or use the image on that painting. You own the object. You don't own the idea. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think there's yeah. the NFT space is kind of bifurcating into two camps right now. Projects where creators own and yeah. control the IP and creative common projects, as folks are calling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Absolutely. I would say that the, the thing here to remember is some are, and I love this concept, which is the idea of a beveling good. These are like that it is sort of this touches on this innate desire to collect and differentiate as a human, which is there are some goods that the, it's sort of like an inverse correlation. The less utility something has, hmm. um, and it has more demand, the price increases. So it's like you think about like super luxury high-end bags, like Birkin bags that were produced by Hermes or high-end watches, right? It's like people want them now because it has a lot of utility. I mean, you're better off having an an iWatch, an Apple Watch. And so, something to keep. It is a fascinating kind of evolution of 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 what people want in NFTs. And I think ultimately, there's going to be very different type of collectors that come into the space. I agree. So, Uh, two other things to shout out here um, and just keep an eye on. We'll talk about them maybe next time. 
Uh, Shopify potentially having a MetaMask integration. Uh, the fa- founder of Shopify, uh, Shopify biggest e-commerce platform, like one of the biggest e-commerce platforms in the world, and a platform for millions of businesses to launch their businesses and their e-commerce businesses. Uh, Toby, their founder, changed his name to Toby.eth. He bought Toby.eth for like a hundred thousand bucks. Uh, potentially rolling out a MetaMask integration for Shopify. That's really interesting. Don't want to talk about it that, though right now for sake of time. Also, Nike acquired RTFKT. Um, really interesting acquisition. Uh, the I think the narrative in the conversation here is can can big companies pivot into Web3 or not, right? Does Nike fundamentally and their leadership team fundamentally understand this or... Uh, or is it like a 10-person team that they've just been like, hey, go go play with that crypto stuff? Um, on that note, like Robinhood really continuing their crypto push. They acquired Cove Markets, which is a great trading platform run by just an even better guy, this guy Scott. Um, they're launching a crypto wallet, more crypto native wallet soon. One thing I just want to call out, the funding mm-hmm. continues. Uh, Anchorage, $350 million funding announcement. Um Nidig, $1 billion funding announcement, $7 billion valuation. Uh, the funding is interesting. Wow. Like, it's just a stupid amount of money. What's even more interesting mm-hmm. is who they're getting it from. Anchorage raised $350 mm-hmm. million from KKR, Goldman, BlackRock, PayPal, obviously Andreessen, obviously Alameda participated, Apollo, uh, GIC, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, Golden Tree Asset mm-hmm. Management, Wellington Management, and private equity firm mm-hmm. Toma Bravo. Right? These these are by the way all 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 clients or potential future clients of Anchorage. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But also the biggest institutions in the world. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Nidig, same thing. Right. Morgan Stanley. Like they've been red pilled. They've been red pilled. They have been red pilled. Everyone's getting red pilled. So. Uh, the conversation to have there is like permanent capital versus impermanent capital. 2017 market mm-hmm. booms, ICOs. That was impermanent capital. It was ETH going into treasuries when they needed when they needed U.S. dollars. They started selling their treasuries, which caused ETH to go down, mm-hmm. which means they had to sell more, which means ETH had to go down. That was, you know, that was impermanent capital. This is all permanent capital, right? This is a billion dollars from KKR. This is U.S. dollars going into your bank account. So, does it extend this bull market? Absolutely. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's very, very encouraging. You'll see more and more announcements of this type uh, that I'm aware of that haven't been that haven't been kind of finalized, but um, very, very traditional, emblematic, impactful names. Look, when I was at, at, at Parify, one of our you know first investors was Henry Kravis. It was no surprise. I remember that ten million bucks to seed you guys. I remember that. Yeah, I mean, and, and so to me. I mean, that was amazing. And, you know, is Kennedy the most tech savvy person out there? No, but he understands the formation of an asset class. He basically practically invented the LBO. And, and I mean, I, 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 was, I was even around then, but I grew up reading about this stuff. And it was, it was just very, very encouraging to see someone like that. And, and he would tell you, you know, it is rare as an investor to see the formation of a new asset class. And I think, you know, we, 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 we talked to Bill Tai earlier this week. And you talk about someone that has been early in so many trends, semiconductors, the internet, crypto. And I think the smartest guys invariably just have an appreciation for it is very hard to overlook the amount of talent, the amount of energy, creative, human capital, financial capital now increasingly that is coming into the space. For someone that has been around in the internet, appreciates the power of open source, but how broken it was because Linux didn't accrue much value. Tim Berners-Lee isn't the richest guy in the world. Tokens allow you to do that. Tokens are more equitable distributions and, and, and ways to monetize and directly map contributions with value accrual. And so that paradigm, whether you believe in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, I don't care. NFTs, I actually don't care. The, the, but the idea of sharing value accretion with your contributors, whether you're a Facebook uh, user, Twitter user, YouTube, or any other network, Wikipedia, uh, entry person, your contributor, you now know that there's this world of Web3 that is more fair and rewards you much, much more. So faced with the choice of going to Twitter or going to a decentralized Twitter where you can make money actually because you are an influencer and you contribute to the value of the platform network effects, I'm sorry, but that puts everyone on their toes. And I think the 
the the status quo is uh, you know I think more and more Web two companies will realize that they will not be able to compete against Web three protocols. Yeah. Here's what's really interesting: is the way that uh, these institutional funds, like the Apollos and folks like that, like to look at the and the KKRs like to look at this stuff. They have a framework, right? Like when you look at when they start investing in tech or any of the or like Tiger. Uh, or SoftBank, like you invest in tech, you have frameworks, right? You have mental models for how you do this stuff. Mm -hmm. You look at how big the network is getting. You look at user growth. You look at um, churn rate. And what's amazing is that for the first, like crypto, crypto has these, right? There's two types of companies in crypto. There's like the almost Web 2E type companies that enable Web 3. It's like the Anchorages and the BlockFi's and the Coinbase's and things like that. They obviously have these amazing metrics happening. And that's why they're raising 350 million bucks. That's why they're raising a billion dollars. You also now, for the first time ever, these DeFi protocols, you can, you can now put these DeFi protocols into the frameworks that these investors like, right? There's, there's, I mean, you can kind of say that they're spinning off cash. It looks a little, it almost looks more like a share, share buyback, but uh, I don't know. I think, I think what you're going to see right now, you're seeing $350 million going into Anchorage because they've got that user growth, customer growth, things like that. You're going to start seeing this institutional capital next year flowing into DeFi protocols and things like that. So, look, if you've been around crypto this long, and you see this stuff, and you're not encouraged by it, you've you've held on for so long that it's always fascinating. We look at charts, and just think about it. if you were super early in Google, and you zoom into the chart, and there are discrete moments where, how many people do you think actually sold early, early on Amazon, Google, because they said, "Wow, like it wildly surpassed my expectations," but then. I always like to like adjust the time scale and do a long function or just regular to a lot of these charts of like Amazon, Google, and just remind myself that look, the brain is not wired to process nonlinear events. The rise of the internet took really 20 years in earnest, two cycles, two big cycles. You had the bubble crash, and then after the crash, everyone was so dismissive of the internet. And like there's videos, and, and, well, Bill Gates tries to go on like these talk shows, and everyone's like, why would you ever want to use the internet? Like, it's dead. And they were mocking business models like pets.com, which, by the way, are now super successful. Why? Because you had the ability to move from on-prem to, 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 to you know, software licensing models, which really lowered the cost for a lot of these startups. And so all of a sudden, new business models become very, very viable. And so just going back to this idea, maybe a lot of the things that didn't work in Ethereum are going to work in Solana, are going to work in Cosmos. And so I like to remind myself of that because, and Bill Ty said it in our episode, and I, you and I believe this, we are so goddamn early. Um, it has felt, we joke about this, it feels like a year in crypto is seven years or 10 years in real life, especially these last two years I look back, I'm like, I just felt like I've been glued to my chair. I, I can't believe I still don't have carpal tunnel syndrome, like clicking you know, buttons and layer all day. Um, but we're very early. And I think these funding funding announcements and looking at the characters that are showing up really are just an indication yeah. of that. Because I, I think that the adoption of crypto, particularly catalyzed by NFTs and gaming, is going to happen much faster than the internet because you're using the distribution of the internet. Anyone with a connection can now move money at the speed of information. That's explosive. Uh, the Bill Tye episode came out yesterday for everyone. Uh, I would really recommend people go listen to it. Big takeaway there. We're still in the AOL era of public blockchains, using them as slow, using them as expensive. There are exponential improvements coming. Uh, also, funny note, like these corporate participants want to fake this open and permissionless uh, tech build. Uh, you saw it in 2017 and 2016 with like enterprise blockchain. Same thing's happening again. Always happens in a bull run. Um, but yeah, still in the, st still in the AOL era. Uh, something I, I want to end on mm -hmm. a tweet that you sent out. Let me see if... Uh... Oh, boy. <clears throat> I tell people now that I'm a professional shitposter. Yeah, that tracks. That tracks. <laughs> you said perhaps the most important chart of the decade. It was this Preston Pish chart. So Preston tweeted out on December 14th, let's not forget to adjust that consolidated global chart and account for dollar debasement, M2 money supply growth. Oh, here's that chart, up 6.9% since the 2009 bottom mm -hmm. 12 years ago. It was basically comparing like the return of the st of, of like global indices, but then adjusting that for uh, dollar debasement. So M two money supply. So uh, as we know, over sixty percent of like all dollars in circulation like have been printed last year. So obviously we've been in this environment. So when you adjust for that, 
then the returns, if you don't adjust for that, like just gross, are 171%. So you would look at this chart and say, wow, like, you know, if you look at global indices, they're up 171%. It's like, wow, we've been in this environment of like so much wealth creation. Like, it's great. But the real insight here is when you adjust for M2 money supply growth, then that chart all of a sudden just suggests we're up only 6.9%. So sorry to break it, but you're not even beating, you know, uh, going forward, you may not even beat that. That might be negative territory when you consider uh, the rise of inflation. So I thought that was a very interesting um, adjustment and observation by Preston. So I thought he put it really well, right? Central banks are doing whatever they can do to keep the global economy afloat. But through this constant manipulation of the currency supply, they obliterate the middle class and add this really, really fundamental, immeasurable, systematic risk to the system. Uh, and th- I think this chart summed it up well. So, I think so, too. I think this was a good, good episode. We covered through a lot. Any parting thoughts? I mean, I have no, no book recommendation and no documentary recommendation, so I feel like I'm, I'm failing you here. Actually, I do have a book recommendation that I listened to on the plane. Took this red eye last night, so I was like in and out of sleep the entire time. But uh, Empires of Light. Um, okay. Chris, Chris Dixon actually recommended it. What's it about? It is basically the story of the history of electricity, um, and it's uh, basically Edison versus uh, Tesla, like not Tesla, like Nikola Tesla, Thomas Edison versus Nikola Tesla versus uh, George Westinghouse. Um, and basically mm-hmm. in like the final decades of the 19th century, how they approached electricity from really, really, really different ways and how they, it's about how they developed it. Like they're engineers, right? So one of them was like an engineer, one was more of a salesperson. So they approached it very differently. And it honestly reminds me of like the L1 wars, right? Different uh, I was just going to say, you have a Solana Ethereum. <laughs> different distribution strategies. One was more B2B. One was more B2C. Like one was more focused on the tech. One was more focused on the marketing. And they, they collided with each other. And it re- really good story. Granted, it was a red eye. In and out of sleep. Not sure uh, how much I got of it, but I would really recommend it. Pretty good recollection for a red eye, yeah. I'll say. All right, my friend. We'll get, get some sleep. Cool. Uh, always good being on. Um, see you next week. Cool. Be well. All right. You too. Take care.